college basketball news dropping on Monday. John Beeline done at Michigan. Couple years of rumors of a potential NBA departure. Last year was the Pistons talk. Those finally materialized, and he's gone to the Cavaliers. Andrew Doughty here on the High Motor Podcast. A little bit of college basketball, a lot of bit of football today. I was able to grab Kyle Rowland, Michigan writer for the Toledo Blade, for a few minutes on a busy day for him. Talk candidates and more. And then after him, Stephen Lassen from Athlon Sports is going to jump on. We're going to talk coaches, rankings, dark horses, uh, underrated, overrated. A lot of things I want to get to with Stephen. Let's waste no time here on the High Motor Podcast. We're going to start with Kyle talking John Beeline and where Michigan basketball might go from here. Let's fire it up on the High Motor Podcast. Kyle Rowland from the Toledo Blade, and Kyle, whenever college basketball coaching news drops here, we're sitting in mid-May, it's usually a bad thing for for at least some or all parties involved. In this case, it's a really bad thing for Michigan basketball, losing one of the best in John Beeline, and now all eyes are focusing on, on the next head coach, and I saw that you tweeted about Jawan Howard earlier this morning, and even without that college coaching experience, do you think Howard is a realistic possibility for Michigan? Yeah, I definitely do. Uh, would not be surprised at all if he gets interviewed. He obviously has the Michigan connection. He's a, an up-and-coming guy in the NBA, widely respected throughout the league. He's been assistant with the Miami Heat now for six seasons. Um, obviously, he's a, a great player, too. So I, I think he's just a natural guy who will get a look. Uh, Laval Jordan has always kind of been speculated as the guy who would replace D-line. But A, people didn't think it would be this soon. And B, Jordan hasn't exactly distinguished himself as a great head coach. He was uh, only 11-24 and 24 in one season at UW-Milwaukee. He led Butler to the tournament two years ago, but this past season they struggled big time. They went 16-17, didn't make the tournament. So I just don't know if that's the guy you want to hire to continue on. I know he's you know, a longtime assistant at Michigan and, and was a part of some success there, but... I don't know. I mean, this is one of the best jobs in the country, top 10, top 15 jobs. They're going to have kind of their pick of some really accomplished guys. Can they do, I guess, can they do better? I know you mentioned Howard is highly respected in NBA circles, and, and, and Jordan has all that those ties, even though he has underwhelmed. But like you said, it's probably a, you know, I don't know if we want to quantify it here, but it's probably a top 10 to 15 job, like you said. Can Can they just do better than those guys? Yes, and you got to make the calls to the to the best coaches in the game. I mean, the Brad Stevens, the Billy Donovans, Jay Wright. I mean, those guys, you just got to call them. And if they say no, they say no. But you got to do your due diligence. And of those three, I'm not saying he's going to take the job, but Billy Donovan, I think, is an interesting case because he's been in Oklahoma City now for several years. The last two years, he's had Paul George and Russell Westbrook. They haven't done anything at all. Um, who knows? Maybe he says, I've been great in college. I know I can succeed there. Michigan's awesome. They're set up for long-term success. I'm going there. Um, so, Stevens and, and Jay Wright, I don't think, are, are too realistic. Uh, but I, the Donovan thing is intriguing, and, and maybe there's something to that. Um, Rick Pitino is, is out there. Zero chance Michigan hires him, I think. Uh, I just don't. He's he's kind of untouchable for a big program. Uh, that'd be such a leap uh, for them to take. 
I would expect in 10 to 14 days they're going to have a new head coach. Uh, I have no idea who it's going to be at this point, but it will certainly be very, very interesting to see how everything goes. And then the, the guys on the staff, Saudi Washington, Luke Jokic, I just don't think either of them are ready right now to, for their first head coaching job to be at Michigan. Do you get the feeling that Ward Manuel and that administration is going to hire the, the long-term guy right now and not go with Washington or Jokic for the short term and then and do a full coaching search next, uh, well, I guess throughout the entire season, then hire a guy next March or April? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think they're definitely just going to hire the long-term coach. I, I just don't think that strategy, I don't think it's a sound strategy. I don't think it works. Um, you got time. I mean, it's an odd time or whatever to hire a coach, but, I mean, it's fine. You don't, everything will be good. The, the, the new recruiting period will start here soon. They'll get someone in, in place. I mean, coaches leave in the middle of the year. Um, I mean, Ohio State's last two coaches they've hired, Dad Mata and Chris Holman, both were hired in the summer, and they've worked out pretty well. One thing that I was going back on, looking at Ward Manuel, back when he was uh, just gotten there, I think he got there, in, excuse me, got there at UConn, um, at UConn early in like 2012, and then he oversaw the Calhoun to Ollie transition at UConn. Are you putting any stock in that? I mean, do you do you look at that? And I know you don't you don't think that Washington or Yaklich is maybe ready, but going back to that, and yeah, that transition worked. It was pretty smooth at first, and then now we've gotten into a little bit of some mess, and obviously they moved on, but. Because that transition worked a little bit, are you putting any stock thinking that maybe because of what happened at UConn, he would consider promoting within, or is it just a completely different job, a way better job, too? That's an interesting point. Very interesting. I mean, a lot of these ADs draw on past experiences, no doubt. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't expect Washington to get the job. And if one of them does, I think it would definitely be him. But you bring up an interesting, interesting point. I mean something to think about if you had I to know. i know we're, we're so early we're sitting here talking monday morning at about 11 o'clock eastern this news just dropped i know it happened over the weekend essentially terms were agreed to but this news just dropped what three or four hours ago but uh if you had to put your money on somebody right now who would it be that's a great question i mean because i think you tweeted something on monday morning we were like i honestly have no idea what direction they're gonna go yeah, and I mean, then i, I know I, you mentioned I, the I name this moment have no idea i something tells me that Donovan is way more realistic than anyone would think. At the end of the day, I, I would say it will probably be someone that we're a little surprised about, and we're like, oh, didn't see that coming. Uh, one name to keep keep in mind, Nate Oates, who won huge at Buffalo and recently took the Alabama job. Uh, he's from Michigan, coached at Romulus High School before he got an assistant job at Buffalo and then became the head coach. I'm telling you, that's his dream job. There's precedent for guys leaving jobs without coaching. I mean, Chris Beard, who just beat Michigan in the tournament, took the UNLV job for like two weeks and then left to go to Texas Tech. I mean, maybe Nate Oates gets a job. Who knows? Yeah, and Nate Oates isn't even making that much money. I think his his new salary, the annual for five years, is like $2.4 million. And I think that's kind of what part of what makes Brad Stevens interesting. Yes, he's making NBA money, but he's not making five, six, seven million dollars a year. Like it's very doable uh, for Michigan. All right, file, uh, follow Kyle. Excuse me, Kyle on Twitter for updates on the Michigan search. Really appreciate the time uh, during a busy day. Thanks a lot, Kyle. Anytime. Thanks a lot. Stephen Lass.
Madison. Joining the show today, college football editor and writer for Athlon Sports. We're going to talk some college football jobs, some rankings, all kinds of good stuff. And Stephen, right before you hopped on, I pulled up those job rankings that you guys dropped um, I don't know, a couple weeks ago now, ranking all 130 head coaching jobs in college football. And well, I actually Googled it because I couldn't remember the exact title. And when I Googled it, I, I, got the re- I got the results that I was looking for, but the other half of the results were either very critical of the rankings or direct ripoffs of your content, like like Athlon's top 130 rankings or Athlon's top 25 pre-spring rankings. And then there was one from fan-sided, Athlon disrespects the orange. Are you ever amused when your content becomes news or content for other websites? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm always interested to see the reaction to our articles and, and rankings from around the web. You know, I think in the kind of the, the case of the job rankings, they're so subjective that, you know, I could ask you to give me a top 25. I could ask two people at work to give me a top 25. And you see a lot of differences, you know, just because of all the factors that go into it. But, yeah, I mean, you know, in a big picture perspective, whether it's our top 25, our quarterback rankings, job rankings. I mean, you know, once we posted, we usually get the, you know, Athlon ranked Big Ten quarterbacks, and, and you click on the article and you see all the rankings, and, you know, you're kind of frustrated because you spent a couple hours working, and, you know, hey, it's all in one article now. So, Stephen, those job rankings, they get a lot of attention. Uh, a few things on those. In your opinion, what is the most underrated job in the country right now? That's a really good question. You know, I think in terms of underrated – I think, you know, and it seems strange to say it, we have Clemson at number seven. And, you know, it's kind of like an SEC job with all the fan support, the ability to go get talent from anywhere in the southeast. You see Clemson being able to dip into, you know, Georgia, the Carolinas, and Florida. We've got them at number seven. And with Florida State being down right now, Miami's also down, um, you know, this is a, you have a pretty clear path to, the ACC championship right now. So you know, even at number seven, you could maybe argue Clemson is just a little bit underrated. You know, wouldn't have them much higher than number seven, but certainly I think there's some opportunity there. You know, looking further down the list, I've always been interested in kind of the sleeping giants of college football, essentially. You know, a, a program like Texas A&M, we have them number 12. They've moved up the list um, the, the couple times that we've done it. And you look at all the factors that Texas A&M has going for it, whether that's recruiting territory, whether that's money, you know, you know, why hasn't this program won a little bit more? So I think you look at those factors and say, you know, if I'm a head coach and I feel pretty confident in my abilities, I, you know, I would want to go to Texas A&M and see if I could maybe take them to the next level. And, and I think when you look down the list, I mean, a place like Virginia Tech, access to good talent, um, you know, Great fan base at Virginia Tech as well. They're number 26 in our rankings. I think they could be a little bit higher. Um, you know, TCU at 37 is one job I think we were a little bit too low on. I think they could easily be in the top 25 to 30. I mean, TCU located a great place for talent in Texas. You can. It's kind of one of those situations where if you're at TCU or even a place like Houston um, at 48 in our list, you can get in your car and spend a couple days in the state recruiting, and there's every you know every player you could need to build a roster from. So you know, I think when you look, you know, Clemson, the ability in the ACC right now um, with all the 
the perks of the job with facilities and money, and you even look places like TCU, even Houston at 48, I think might be a little low. Throw UCF in there too at number 50. Um, you know, access to talent uh, in the state of Florida, and certainly um, a fan base that's certainly uh, been very vocal the last couple of years, and certainly very supportive of their team. Yeah, I know Dana Holgerson has talked about that a lot, like even on teleconferences this spring, about how you go from. Um, one of the least talent-rich states in the entire country, down to Houston, where you can go out and basically find uh, your entire 85 scholarship roster within what, like a 60 to 90-minute drive. I want to, I want to go down like a little bit farther. Looking down, there are a couple programs that have gotten a lot of attention over the last couple of years because of what their coaches have done, turning historically. Um, well, terrible. I mean, I was going to sugarcoat it a little bit, but historically terrible programs in Purdue and Iowa State. Purdue at 52, Iowa State at 63. Do you think that's um, – I guess how, how how satisfied are you with where they land? I know this isn't just you making these rankings. This is a joint effort be, um, amongst your staff. Do you think Purdue at 52 and Iowa State at 63? And I don't want to nitpick here uh, too much because we are far down the list, but do you feel comfortable with where those programs landed? You know, I actually think we might be a little bit high on Purdue. You know, we have Minnesota at 57. I voted Minnesota ahead of Purdue, but certainly – you know, they're so close that it's hard to disagree with that kind of uh, Purdue, Illinois, Northwestern, and Minnesota run of teams there. I think when you, you, know, you get into these um, these jobs like in the 50s and, and even Iowa State at 63, you're looking for things that can kind of separate it. So, you know, Purdue has been willing to invest in Jeff Braun. They're willing to invest in the assistant coaches and the facilities. And I think in our mind, we've seen kind of that commitment to football for Purdue, which I think was kind of just enough to elevate them over um, Illinois, which is, you know, it seems like it should be a better job. Um, the talent base is certainly there, but they've struggled. You know, you also look at Northwestern. It's, it's a difficult job, but Pat Fitzgerald has had a lot of success there. And, you know, I think when, even when you look at Iowa State, Iowa State's got a great fan base. It's incredibly supportive. It's just a very difficult place to win. Just not a lot of talent in the state of Iowa. Not enough to build a one through eighty-five roster that can be competitive um, in the Big Twelve. So you have to go outside of that. But I think what Matt Campbell has done most importantly is he's very good at identifying, you know, three-star talent, two-star talent, and developing it over the course uh, of their career. So. You, know, you may see players, you know, when, when Iowa State's a very junior and senior heavy team, that's when I think you could see them, like they made this year or 2020, make a run to the Big 12 championship. But Matt Campbell is really getting the most uh, out of that roster. And I think the same thing for, for Jeff Brom. And when you're outside of the top, you know, 50 or so, you're kind of looking for something that kind of can elevate you. And I think in our mind, uh, Purdue was the money factor, commitment to football. They've also had pockets of success, too. Joe Tiller was, was an outstanding coach in Iowa State, just that fan base, but also a very difficult place to win. Let's flip it here and ask you, what is the most overrated job in the country? And then kind of along those lines, um, over the last few years, we just talked about jobs that are going up. Over the last few years, what jobs do you think are just getting worse and kind of falling behind their peers and have lost opportunities over the last four or five years? You know, I think one job that had a lot of debate in our meeting was North Carolina. I was higher on North Carolina than most of our staff. I had them closer to number 30. They ended up number 43. And I think one of the factors that came up in our meeting was, 
you know, North Carolina, certainly more of a basketball school, you know, kind of what is the fan level commitment as far as being, um, you know, that football program that contends for the coastal division title on an annual basis. The, the factors that you need are certainly there. I mean, you know, being willing to upgrade your facilities, pretty good recruiting base at North Carolina, willing to go out and get coaches. Um, you had 43. I think there's some potential. I think they could be a lot higher. And you also look, you know, why didn't Larry Fedora have more success than he did after, uh, you know, winning the Coastal Division title? So that's kind of one job that was really tough for us to figure out. I think, you know, we mentioned Illinois. That's a that's one of a, a just a – it's kind of hard to understand why this program isn't consistently better. But it also kind of goes to if you're administratively, if you're, if you're, if you're not making the right hires there or as a head coach, um, you know, with Lovey Smith and some of the other hires they've had there, it's been a little on the questionable side. So that's why you can see Illinois, some of the pieces are there, but the hiring and, and administrative side just hasn't been there. I think, you know, when you look down the list, maybe some missed opportunities. You know, I, I look at, at, at some of these, you know, maybe group of five schools, and, and I think you see, you know, a place like, you know, South Florida where they're ranked 59, some potential. Charlie Strong hasn't quite met preseason expectations there. That's an interesting job, a lot of potential. You know, they're trying to get to that UCF type of level and compete for, uh, you know, the group of five spots in, 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 in big-time bowl games. So that's a, that was an interesting job as we went through. And I think you know, when you look kind of closer to the top 25, I, I think one of the jobs that, that's always fascinated me has been Arizona State just because, you know, it, it's located close to Phoenix. You get you know, some decent talent in, in the state of Arizona. You can recruit Texas. You can recruit California. And they certainly made the interesting move to go to Herm Edwards and that new structure that they have as far as head coach and, and off-field, uh, you know, kind of personnel department. But that's a job that I think would should be winning on, on a more consistent basis. And, and kind of as a whole, the Pac-12 has, has not quite met preseason expectations or, or been, I guess, performing at the level that, that most of the Pac-12 uh, programs would hope to recently. Steven, this is something that I've I've wondered over the last couple of years. You mentioned Matt Campbell. I think we can all agree that Iowa State basically hit the jackpot there. How many how many schools have like their their dream, their perfect fit coach? And like you did with the rankings, that's taking into account everything. This is probably a discussion, uh, a larger discussion that we could do an entire episode, um, a large article on something like that. But taking account into everything, uh, like for example, yeah, a lot of programs would love to have Nick Saban. But would somebody like a program like Oklahoma like would they trade Lincoln Riley for Nick Saban like Lincoln Riley who could lead them for several decades? So I guess my question: What programs jump off off the page or right at the top of your mind where you say they have their ideal fit and realistically they would not trade like Washington? I think Washington is a great example that comes to mind. I mean, it seems like Washington and Chris Peterson are this perfect fit, and I'm not sure that Washington would trade Chris Peterson for anybody in the country. So what programs at the top of your mind you think they just have their perfect fit coach, and if given the opportunity, they would never change it for anybody? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I think Matt Campbell at Iowa State definitely fits into that conversation. I agree with Chris Peterson. I think he's just the perfect fit for Washington. You know, I also I, I think you look at Kirby Smart, even though that's, that's kind of the obvious one being, um, you know, a Georgia alum. I think what he's done over the last couple of years, elevating Georgia, 
into playoff consideration. Um, you know, I also look at places like Stanford. You have David Shaw at Stanford, Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern, David Cutcliffe at Duke. It seems like those um, academic schools and trying to find that balance on the field, they've really identified the right coach. And, and I think those three uh, kind of specifically are ones that really nailed their hire. Sure, sure everybody would have would love to have Nick Saban, but, I mean, you, you look down the list, you know, Dabo Swinney at Clemson, um, you know, Tom Herman at Texas, I think Jim Harbaugh at, at Michigan are, is another one. So, you know, there's, off the top of my head, it does seem, you know, Scott Frost at Nebraska, it seems like there's a lot of coaches and, and a lot of jobs who've kind of meshed well and, and, and found the right fit. And when you mentioned the academic side of it, you know, Stanford, Northwestern, Duke, you got me thinking that, it seems like the service academies, and I know it's not the same deal, but it kind of falls at least under the same umbrella. The service, service academies with Nia Montalolo, uh, Monk, and you could even make a case that Troy Calhoun is the perfect guy out at Air Force and that those three wouldn't. I can't remember a time in which all three service academies seems like they have their perfect fit. Can you? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I'm just thinking about that too. You know, Calhoun and mocking i mean yeah that, that this is really i'm trying to think during my lifetime in, in my college football range which kind of starts about 1990 this seems to be about the, the the you know the best run for all three programs in terms of head coach and consistent success and yeah i don't think they would trade i mean you think about what army had to navigate when they were in conference usa how far down they went and then now Monken has got them, you know, potentially being a top 25 team this year. This is the, all three are really the perfect fit based upon, you know, kind of the mission of the academy on field and kind of the style that they run. So, yeah, I mean, I think all three certainly fit that uh, criteria pretty well. Let's shift here. Uh, the other day I was going through and trying to predict who could be this year's Kentucky. When I say this year's Kentucky, I, I mean a – a program that over the last, I don't know, four or five years, they've been able to improve their overall talent, their depth. Um, it hasn't been bad, um, but it hasn't been great. They haven't really contended for anything in a long time. Um, a program that starts the season strong and then suddenly come, you know, week eight, week nine, week ten, late October or November, we're talking about them as a potential conference title pick. And the reason why I say this year is Kentucky because, you know, last year after they go down to A&M and win that game, they win the tight win against Missouri. Neither were necessarily impressive wins. But then they're sitting here with this opportunity at Georgia. And two teams that I really think fit the bill on that, Minnesota and Baylor, I had on that list. You know, I think there are a lot of similarities, a lot of potential, especially with how their schedules set up. Do I think that either will actually win a conference title or even play in the conference title game? No, I don't think so at all. But I, but I think that they could be in similar spots as Kentucky come, like I said, week 8, week 9, week 10, where we're looking at their schedule and saying, you know, damn, if they win this game, uh, this is real. Do you see any teams that are that are outside of, you know, the top, we'll say like 40 to 50 nationally that could be turning a corner program-wise, and we could be sitting here late October, early November saying, you know what, they're a game away from this being like a real, real possibility. I really like the Minnesota call because I think when you look at the Big Ten West, I think Nebraska, Iowa, and Wisconsin are the top three teams in the division next season. But that didn't even, I didn't even mention Northwestern. And I think that's the interesting thing is Northwestern, the defending Big Ten West champion, Minnesota's getting better, Purdue better under Jeff Brom. 
know, it feels like even though that, you know, you can look at Iowa and say maybe they're the best team next season in that division, the schedule is difficult. The same thing for Wisconsin. Nebraska's got some defensive issues. So, you know, I think Minnesota under P.J. Flex, they've been recruiting better. Um, I like the, the offensive skill talent. There's some promising young talent on the offensive line, too. The big thing, and, and I was when I was writing the Big Ten quarterback article that stood out to me, you know, Minnesota just needs to find a quarterback. I mean, Tyler Johnson may be one of the most underrated players in college football. So I like the Minnesota call. I like Virginia as a sleeper in the ACC. I mean, I know they were pretty good last year, and I think it's going to be hard for anyone to beat Clemson in the ACC championship game. But Virginia defensively has been rock solid under Bronco Mendenhall, Bryce Perkins, you know, one of the top dual-threat quarterbacks in college football. I think they will be a trendy pick to win the Coastal Division this year and be in the top 25. One, one program I also I'm, – I'm interested to see where they go is UCLA. 3-9 uh, and nine last season in Chip Kelly's debut, but they were much better, you know, from basically, you know, kind of midway until the end of the season. And I'm curious to see if they pick up where they left off because you have USC, a lot of uncertainty in the South. Utah is the clear favorite, but somebody's got to finish second. And Arizona underachieved. Arizona State has some um, some personnel losses to navigate. So, you know, I, I'm interested in Minnesota, Virginia. Uh, I think Iowa State, you know, we talked about them. I think they'll be a preseason top 25 team too. So, you know, kind of hard to call them a dark horse. But it almost seems like if you're going to see kind of a surprise team, it's going to come from someone like Minnesota in the Big Ten West, um, you know, the Pac-12 South like UCLA. Hard to see someone out of the SEC. It's pretty top-heavy this year. But if maybe if you're looking for, a, you know, a sleeper, I, I you know, Missouri's interesting. They're ineligible to, to play in a bowl game, but. If they finished in the top 25 next year, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Hey, Stephen, last thing before you go here, you mentioned that you were going through and doing those Big Ten quarterback rankings. For those of you who haven't seen it, uh, Stephen dropped it on Monday morning at athlonsports.com, and you just ranked uh, all 14 projected uh, starters. And I know we're sitting here in May, and that, and that might change the projected starter come August, but you ranked all 14 projected starters, and you're going conference by conference. And Going through it, you have uh, Nebraska's Adrian Martinez. That's number three right now behind Justin Fields, behind Shea Patterson, number one. How confident are you that come December, those will still be the Big Ten's three best quarterbacks in that order? I feel pretty confident. You know, I think when you look at Shea Patterson last season, you know, he I thought he quietly had a nice debut for Jim Harbaugh. And, you know, there were some other factors involved. Michigan's offensive line wasn't you know, wasn't perfect going into the year. It certainly got a lot better over the course of the season. Tariq Black was also hurt, so one of Michigan's best receivers was sidelined. And Shea Patterson did a nice job of jump-starting that offense after they cycled through uh, three quarterbacks the previous year. So I, I think Shea Patterson with the new offense under uh, Josh Gaddis and the way they're going to try to go to more spread and more tempo, I think that fits him well. Justin Fields is the interesting one because five-star recruit of Georgia, really promising in limited time, but the you know the sample size is pretty small, and you know there was a lot of a lot of uncertainties after the spring game because his numbers weren't great. Most of his passing yards come all on play. 
I think it's hard to, to doubt Ryan Day. I mean, his ability to develop quarterbacks, the track record isn't very long, but what he did with Dwayne Haskins in that offense last season, I think he'll, he'll make the most of Justin Fields and his dual threat ability. So I, I feel pretty good in the top two, and I think Adrian Martinez, I mean, if you told me that one kind of quarterback came off the radar this season and was maybe a finalist for the Heisman Trophy, you know, someone like Adrian Martinez certainly fits that. I mean, his numbers last season um, as a true freshman, over 3,000 yards of total offense and not to mention 25 overall scores. Nebraska's offense and Nebraska as a whole, they're only going to get better with, with Scott Frost calling the plays. A lot of promising playmakers. So I think you know we saw at UCF that offense took a big step forward in Scott Frost's second year. I think Nebraska will do that once again this season, and I think Adrian Martinez will be an All-Big Ten quarterback. All right, that's Stephen Lassen from Athlon Sports. Thanks for chatting today. Always appreciate the thorough, the comprehensive uh, college football talk. We'd love to have you back on during the season if you're available, Stephen. Hey, Andrew, anytime. I appreciate you having me on. You will be the first nationally televised trial in history. You look nice, partner. I'm disguised as an attorney today. <laughs> I get very scared, but, you know, he's also really dreamy. There are things you don't know that will shock you beyond your worst nightmare. Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile dropped on Netflix last weekend. Zach Efron as Ted Bundy. It was getting a lot of pre-release attention. And heads up here, might dip into some spoilers. Not a ton, uh, but turn it off if you have not seen it and you plan to. This is the last piece of today's episode, so turn off the episode. Come back later if you are planning to watch it. But a lot of pre-release attention. It was the subject of some criticism. The glamorizing of a serial killer and this is a tough one for me and here's why i really appreciate the effort so it was directed by james berlinger he's a true crime documentary filmmaker and you can tell it a lot of it is shot like a true crime true crime documentary i'm not saying that as a criticism i'm just saying that's what you can expect if you haven't seen it and you know i appreciate the effort because they showed a very different side of the story they showed this side that everybody saw back then you know aside from Bundy's victims the witnesses some detectives he was just hiding in plain sight and most people just didn't want to believe it so they showed it from his girlfriend's perspective and I really appreciated the effort but it just didn't work it did not pull you in at all I guess it did but way later on so it's one hour and one hour and 50 minutes and it takes a really, really long time to get pulled in. The hook just isn't there at all, like which you'd expect in a movie like this. You'd expect the hook. And I, again, I get why the hook is not there. I understand why in the first act, the first you know ten minutes of the first act, I understand why the hook isn't there. And I get what they're trying to do. But the effort and different angle alone does not mean that it's good. I'd still recommend watching it, but for me, it definitely did not work. Okay, that's it for this episode of High Motor. Thanks again to Kyle and Steven for joining the show. I'll be back next week with another episode. Would love to have you come back. Still working on locking down some good guests for the next few weeks, and then we'll jump into a ton of college football talk this summer. A lot of conference preview talks. I think that you're going to enjoy them. Thank you for listening to this episode of the High Motor Podcast. I saw a friend today. It had been a while. And we forgot each other's names. 
But it didn't matter cause deep inside The feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in between